Well, good morning. And good morning to those watching online and in traditions this morning. You know, I have been just compelled by something recently, just reminded that we are given life by God. Jesus gives life to each one of us, and we live life as a response to God. And so this morning, as we, as we get into the word, I hope that you are prepared to respond to God. Once again, the word is a way that God gives fresh life to us. He gives new life to us constantly through his word, by his spirit. By the way, it's Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate the moment that by the blood of Jesus, the Father poured out his spirit, his presence on all people everywhere. No discrimination against anyone, not even based on our sins because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we have full access to relationship with God, and we have the opportunity to respond to him. But we have to take him up on the response. There is, there's no prize in life for the spectators, for people that sit and watch, watch it go by. There are only, uh, there's only prizes for people that engage, that go after it. And so this morning, I just want to draw your attention to a tool we've been using recently, and I hope that the tool does not cheapen the significance of what it symbolizes, but we, we've been using these response cards recently. They're in the seat backs in front of you, both in traditions here in the room, down at Ording Valley. Online, there's an opportunity for you to engage as well. And I draw your attention to that, not because it is the be-all, end-all for, for you to experience God in your life, but because it is critical that you respond, that we not be hearers of the word, but we be doers of the word. And so I want to draw your attention to that tool as a way to engage. We pray over those every week, and the thought there is that you can respond to God and use that as a way to help you articulate your response and drop it in the offering, just like a financial offering. Our obedience is, an, is the ultimate offering to God. And so you drop it in an offering, and we pray over those. And if you put your information on there and there's something you need contact about, we'll contact you. But otherwise, we're just going to pray over those. And I want to draw your attention to that why. Not because I need more cards to read this week, but because I want you to respond to Jesus. I want you to experience the fullness of God. I want you to have that, the ebb and flow of God's presence and your response. Him responding to you, you responding to him in your life. That is the way human life was meant to be lived. And anything short of that is short of flourishing, is short of what God created you for. And that's why we're going through the book of Galatians and looking at this theme. One of the significant themes in the book of Galatians in Scripture is that the good news of Jesus is the answer to our broken world. And I want you to get that in your head. I want that to be the initial thought when you watch the news or you see that next tweet or you see the next thing that, that goes through all of social media saying, here's the new tragedy in the world this week. Have you noticed just in recent weeks, there's no shortage of tragedies. There's no shortage of tragic, horrific events that we are made aware of now on a global scale. And, and by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's no, there's no shortage of tragic, horrific events that happen on a personal scale either. That all around us, there are people walking, look at, walking through our streets, walking through our stores, working at the desk alongside you, showing up as classmates in your class, or even in your own home that are hurting and wounded by genuine brokenness in our world. And, and our culture has taken the, taken the tact of we're going to fight over certain solutions to some of the, the God-sized problems in our world. And what we find over and over again is that both sides of those, those uh, ideology wars tend to fall short of real solutions. 
right? And in recent weeks, we've seen the, the uh, conversation of Roe versus Wade and w- the, the abortion, pro-life, pro-choice conversation re-erupt in our society. And you know what? It's an important conversation because there are, there are babies' lives at stake. There are women's livelihoods and, and well-being at stake. There, these are human beings that we're talking about, and that is an important conversation, but what I, what I can tell you pretty confidently from watching the way that our society has handled that issue so far is that we don't have the answer. And do you know what I've found is that wherever the good news of Jesus is applied, applied genuinely, applied really well, applied not to defend our own worldview, but applied genuinely to bring flourishing to all of humanity, the good news of Jesus has the solution. The question is, will we seek God to find it? And will we be obedient when he leads us? to our response, right? In recent weeks, we've seen, we've seen a horrific uh, tragedy of a shooting in a school in Texas, right? And we're reminded of other events like that that have happened in our society, and, and our society again erupts into a debate over, over things like gun rights and stuff like that. And can I just say, isn't there something more significant at work here than whether people have firearms or not? Shouldn't we be concerned about the number of people in our society whose brains go to the place that they would do something like that, whether it's with a gun in a school or with their children in their home or the number of other places that we see violence and the abuse of humanity, right? There are issues here that go deeper than our policies, and it's not that we don't need policymakers. It's not that we don't need laws or any of those things, and may God call you and raise you up into positions where you can make wise decisions, but what I can tell you is that the answer will not be found by us arguing over different human perspectives. The answer will be found in the good news of Jesus Christ applied by the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit in alignment with the word of God by the people of God. And I read something this week from a book that was written in the 90s. So it's basically obsolete, right? A book that was written, and, and, and this gentleman was writing about the state of our culture and, and the, the, the depravity of our nation and the direction spiritually that we were headed. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because so many people look back on the 90s and think, man, we were doing good then. And I don't know. I don't remember it very well. I remember being in elementary school. And anyways, but what he, what he wrote in this book is he said, at the end of the day, what really matters to these cultural dilemmas that we're facing is how the people of God look to their own spiritual condition. And I thought that's absolutely true. It's always been true. It will always be true that nations and our world will rise and fall not on how people who don't know God do or do not what God has called them to do, but how the people of God respond to what God has given him. And by the way, today is a day that we celebrate on the day of Pentecost, the day that Jesus died for our sins to remove the guilt and shame of all of our pasts, but he didn't just want to make us feel better about the life we're living. He gave us a new life, a life full of his spirit to remove the brokenness of this world and bring restoration in his name for his glory. That's what you're called to in your season of life, in your career field, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your neck of the woods, Jesus has called you. And we will all stand before him one day 
And we will answer to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says, I beg you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So I stand here today not because I've got it all figured out, because I'm, I'm trying to live my own life worthy of the calling that I've received. But I do know that we as the church have to wake up to the goodness of God. We have to wake up to his provision for us. We have to wake up to the reality of God in our lives and truly live every day and see every situation as if the good news of Jesus is the answer to our broken world. So the question when dilemmas rise up inside of us, this last week I had a day where I was just like, Caleb, what is wrong with you? Just the the selfishness and the ugliness of what can be inside of me. And you know what? The good news is the answer to that Caleb localized problem. When I see the issues in my, my community, when I see the issues in our nation, our globe, the, answer, the question is not if the good news is the answer. The question for every one of us is how is the good news the answer? And the Holy Spirit will lead us in our response. But as we look at the, the book of Galatians today, we are going to talk about something significant. Sometimes we can feel the weight of God's calling, and it can feel heavy. It can feel like a burden. It can feel like something that we're afraid of. There have been seasons of my life where I've been afraid of listening to God's voice because of what he would call me to. But can I tell you that the first, the, the first and most defining aspect of the good news of Jesus is grace. We're going to talk a little bit about grace today. And I don't know uh, if you've thought much about grace. Grace can be hard to understand in a broken world because it's rare sometimes. And grace can be even harder to receive in a world where we tend to get good things based on our performance, not based on grace. We tend to distrust grace. Like, what's your angle here? What do you want from me? This can't really be that good. And I want to ask you this morning, have you, ever, have you ever experienced grace? Have you ever been given something that you didn't earn? Something of great value, something significant. Have you ever received something that you didn't earn? I was reminded of a really practical picture of this in my life back when Jeanette and I got engaged and, and we were engaged and, um, you know, I, I just remember people asking me lots of questions. Like if you're a graduating senior uh, this month, you know, you're haunted by the question of what are you going to do next, right? So I just apologize on behalf of all adults that we think you have a plan for your life because none of us have a plan either. But similarly, when you get engaged, everyone wants to know the plan for your life. And um, I will just be the first to confess that when I got engaged, I hadn't really thought further than the wedding day. And so I emptied my bank account. I worked two jobs for for a year and bought a, a wedding ring. And to this day, it's one of the best investments I ever made. But I didn't have a lot of money left over when that decision was done. So it's a good thing she said yes, because that ring wasn't going to fit on my finger. But I remember the week after we got engaged that people started asking me questions like, hey, where are you guys going to live? And I'm like, oh, man, probably not in my parents' house. That's a bad idea. I don't know. You know, where are you going to live? And, 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 and people started asking me, hey, what are you doing for your honeymoon? And, and I 
I realize that there's this expectation that it's the, the groom that plans and pays for the honeymoon, and people started giving me these extravagant ideas and saying, well, so-and-so did this, and so-and-so did that, and, and I just, I started feeling like, oh my goodness, I cannot, what am I going to do? I don't have any money for this. I didn't think about this. Like, what's going to happen? I started feeling this pressure of, of, you know, the wedding day was like, that was somebody else's problem, but this honeymoon felt like it was a real stamp of, of like character, it was going to be a defining factor in my marriage, which two months after I was married, I realized that was not true, and that I didn't know anything about marriage yet, and still today, I wonder how much I actually know about it, but I knew I didn't know anything about two months after I got married. All that to say, I was in this dilemma, I was feeling all sorts of pressure, I felt like I was going to let my new bride down, I felt like, you know, her family was going to be embarrassed, I just, and, and I got this phone call out of the blue from the dad of a good friend of mine. And this gentleman happened to be a pastor. In fact, he's still an Assemblies of God pastor at one of our sister churches today. And I was good friends with his son at Northwest University. And um, Jeanette, who's also a pastor's kid, uh, their parents knew each other. So she had kind of grown up, uh, grown up around his son. And we were just friends of his son. And he called me out of the blue. And I knew who he was. He was kind of an intimidating guy. He was a very successful pastor, large church. He's kind of one of those guys I was like, wow, this guy's a big deal. I have a a ton of respect for him still today, but he's a serious guy. And I'd only talked to him a couple of times when hanging out with his son, and I was very intimidated by this guy. And I get this phone call, and he says, hello, this is so-and-so. And immediately, I just like snapped into, into job interview form. I was like, why, why is he calling me, and what did I do something? You know, you start thinking, did I do something wrong recently? You know, so I hope when a pastor calls you, that's not where your head goes. <laughs> we just call because we love you. But that's where my college-age head went. And, and he said, hey, I just heard, I heard you and Jeanette got engaged. And I said, yeah, he's like, congratulations, you got a great one there, and um, she's, she's incredible, and just, I'm so happy for you guys, and I said, thank you, and he said, well, hey, do you have plans for your honeymoon, and I'm thinking, ah, oh! even, like, now I'm accountable to this pastor, you know, and, and so I'm trying to make it sound the best I can, I'm like, well, I'm still weighing my options, and, you know, I'm thinking about some things, and, you know, I'm trying not to sound like I have nothing figured out, which is where I was at, and he said, well, hey, I don't know if you'd be interested, very kind and humble, as if, as if my options were as good as this. He said, hey, my wife and I, we have a timeshare. Uh, we have a timeshare if you'd be interested, and it's a timeshare in Puerto Vallarta, and we'd love to give that to you for your honeymoon if, if you don't have a better, if you don't have something you'd rather do. And I was like, well, you know, I, I, think, that's, I think that would be awesome. That would be awesome, you know? And, and long story short, uh, though I tried to preserve a little bit of my, my pride, um, I, we received this gift of a honeymoon in Port of Ireland. And I just want you to know, like, vacation for me growing up was like sleeping on the ground around a campfire. Like, we're talking, I grew up in Wisconsin. We camped for vacation. There was no, like, Florida, Disneyland, none of that kind of stuff. And, and so when we went to Port of Ireland, it was without a doubt by far the nicest trip I had ever been on in my life. And it was, it was a beautiful and wonderful experience. And I look back and I think, why did he do that? He had nothing to gain from me. I had nothing to offer him. 
He wasn't, he wasn't hoping I would come to his church. He wasn't trying to hire me on his staff. He wasn't, he wasn't, there wasn't, I wasn't paying him for it. There was no benefit. The only connection was that I was just a friend of his son's. Jeanette was a friend of his son's. And he, for whatever reason, it caught his attention that a couple of young people trying to get started in ministry were got engaged and might need a honeymoon plan, and he had a solution. So he gave something to us. Do you know in Scripture, the Greek word for grace is rooted in the same word as gift? That a gift is something you are given because someone cares about you. They love you. They want to bless you. They don't want anything from you. If it's anything other than that, it's not a gift. It might be a bribe. It might be something else, but it's not a gift. A gift is given as grace, something that you did not earn, but someone just wants to give you. And do you know, just like that dad did for his son's friends, God does that for us. God gives the gift of grace to anyone who calls on the name of his son and says, I want to be counted with Jesus. I want to belong to Jesus. And we get the inheritance of Jesus' father. We are given not only grace for our past, but we're given grace for our future. We're not only saved from our sins, but we are enriched with the wealth of eternity. We are enriched with something far better than Porta Vallarta. We are enriched with the presence of God that leads us into the glory of God. And that is the way the grace of God works. It all hinges on what we celebrated this morning in communion. It all hinges on the blood of Jesus paying the price for our sins because here's the thing. God gives us grace, but we give God rebellion. You might say, well, I've never intentionally rebelled against God, but anytime we use the life he gave us, we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't create it for ourselves. Anytime we use the life he gave us for something other than God's character or nature would intend for us to do, we rebel against him. And we say, I'm going to do this better on my own. I'm better at being my own God than serving you. I'm better at being my own God than being like the one true God. And it separates us from him, and it took the blood of Jesus to pay the price for that and win us back to that gift of grace. And the Apostle Paul to the, to the Galatian church and, and God's spirit to us today is saying, rest in the grace. Don't make it something that it's not. In fact, this was a huge dilemma in the early church because though they believed and they knew that they had to believe in Jesus, that Jesus was the lamb that was slain for their sins. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice for their sins. They knew that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross ended the Old Testament sacrificial system. They still struggled with, but what do we have to do to earn it? What do we have to do? We have to believe and do, right? And there was this dilemma in the early church about how do we receive grace? And I don't know what you thought of the things that you, the, the experiences that you may have had, and maybe you haven't had a lot of people treat you with grace, and at least focus on the fact that God gave you life and breath. He gave you the personality that you have. He has good things in mind for you, that God has already extended grace to you in your creation and in sending his son Jesus for you. You have received grace, but we often think, so what, what's in it for you? What's the catch? What's the angle? What do I have to give you back, God? And there was some of that going on in the early church. And, and many people kind of framed it this way. They were wondering, how Jewish do we have to be to be Christian? 
Like seriously, all of God's people had been Jews up until this point. Jesus was a Jew. God had had spent most of the Old Testament trying to shape and lead the nation of Israel, the Jews. And so when people found out that the door was open to God through Jesus, they thought, well, great, I can step into a relationship with God, but now that I'm here, how Jewish does he want me to be? And there were many people that that felt like, well, we understand that we're saved by Jesus, but now he must have saved us to do what he called Israel to do, right? Many people in the early church were teaching, well, you have to do both. Jesus saved you and sent his spirit so you can do the Old Testament law. And, and there's some things there that kind of get, get interwoven and confusing. And Paul is trying to tell them that the good news of Jesus says that you are saved because of grace, not because of your performance. So yes, did God create you to do good things? Did God create you hoping that you would reflect the moral nature of the Old Testament law? Yes. Does Jesus reaffirm the basic Ten Commandments of the law that you should be focusing your life around loving God and loving people? Yes. But some of the ritualistic things that defined Israel as a separate nation from the other nations of the world, Jesus says you can leave those behind. He tells Peter in the book of Acts, stop making this all about what you eat and don't eat. This is more about building the family of God. And Christians struggled with this. The first hundred years of Christianity, this was the most difficult theological dilemma. How are we supposed to be Christians if we're not also Jews? And Paul is trying to settle this with the Galatians. And unfortunately, there were many opposing and very convincing teachers that were saying, they're right, Paul. You do have to be Jewish to be Christian. You do have to keep all the law to be Christian. You can't eat pork, no more bacon, none of that kind of stuff. And so they're speaking to these Gentiles, these Greeks, these Romans, these other cultures, and they're saying, you got to shape up. You got to get more Jewish. And then, of course, a major conversation the Jews love to hold over the Gentiles is like, all right, you know, here at church, we're like, hey, let's get baptized next Sunday. They were like, hey, next Sunday is circumcision Sunday. Sign up online. We'll circumcise you right here, right after church. And you can imagine there were a lot of people that are like, man, I really love Jesus, but that, wow. Which also should give us some some value for what the Jewish people did in an effort to try to follow God for thousands of years, to try to be obedient. But Paul's saying that's not what it's about. Paul's point. And the Bible's point is that the law, the Old Testament law, played a significant role in the story of God, but it was a placeholder. It's not the end result. It's not the end goal for your life. It's not the law and religion is not the end goal of God for your life. The law was a placeholder in a much bigger story of grace. And you know, this morning you may be sitting here and you're thinking, well, I'm already checked out because I don't really wrestle with how Jewish I have to be. Or maybe some of you are like, well, I am Jewish, so not a problem for me, right? But here's the reality. You may not be struggling with Jewish religion and culture, but you're struggling with some form of religion and culture because human beings were made to be religious. We get to choose what we're religious about. You may not be struggling with with food laws 
Although nowadays we're struggling with like, should I be gluten-free or should I be, you know, should I, should I intermittent fast or which thing am I going to do, you know, which diet am I going to do, right? But what other kinds of cultural dynamics, familial dynamics, or maybe things that you've grown up with in your own church experience that you say, we can't serve God unless it's this way. And when Paul speaks to the religion of the Old Testament, if he can say there are parts of that, that Jesus washed away, then you can better believe that every other cultural dynamic that controls our lives has got to submit to the grace of God. So let's read what he says in Galatians 3. We're going to pick up in verse 15. I'd encourage you to open your Bible apps or your Bible and, and to follow along and highlight and underline. That's why I would encourage you, get a physical Bible, underline, take notes, read along, because it will help you interact with God over time. I'd recommend a good study Bible. That's why I carry around like an 18-pound Bible, because not because I need the arm workout, though I probably do, but because there's helpful study notes in there, right? So I'm just taking this a little commercial, be people of the word. We want to be people of the word. If we're not people of the word, we will be people of the world. And we want to be people of the word. And so Galatians 3.15, commercial break, over, but read your Bibles. Galatians 3.15 starts this way. It says, dear brothers and sisters, here's an example from everyday life of how this law-grace dynamic works. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, think a marriage covenant, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the scripture doesn't say to his children, the nation of Israel, as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child, and that, of course, means Christ. This is why I'm trying to say the agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance, circle that word inheritance, if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not be the result of accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. You should underline all of verse 18 there. He really sums it up there saying, we're not saved. We don't get the inheritance, which by the way, being saved both frees you from the guilt and shame of your past, but sets you free for the glory of a future with God. It is both freedom from the worst parts of our life, but freedom to the things that we can't even ask or imagine that God has for us. We so often limit salvation to, to, oh good, I don't have to feel bad about my past. I don't have to, there's not going to be hell in my future. And Jesus is like, ah, there's so much more to life than that. Like move beyond guilt and shame. Move, be, move to flourishing and living life the way that God intended you. That is the inheritance that you have in Jesus. And he says, you don't get it by keeping the law. Performance is not how you get the inheritance. How do you get it? It's the result of accepting God's promise that he graciously gave to Abraham. And his point in this passage is that the promise he gave to Abraham is really what Jesus fulfilled. And the promise came literally 430 years before the law was given to Moses. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you read in chapters 12 through 25 the story of Abraham's life. 
And it is a powerful story. In fact, it is the foundational story after sin broke the world of how God re-enters the picture and says, I'm going to provide the solution. I have an answer to this broken world, and he started with Abraham. 430 years later, there was a chapter of that story that began with the Mosaic Law through Moses and the Israelites, but that was still just a chapter in the story that God was writing from Abraham all the way through Jesus and now through his church until he returns. It's a story that's not over yet. But let's look at the promise that he first gave to Abraham. Now, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is just a tragedy. It's a tragedy. Things start really good, and they get really bad, which is the way anything in life happens when God gives us a blessing and we try to use it without God. It's the story of humanity trying to use what God gave us without God, and things go from really good to really bad. Genesis 1 through 11, summed up right there for you. You're welcome. And Genesis 12, God begins to fulfill his promise in Genesis 3 that he's going to provide a solution, and he starts right here with Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, the Lord said to Abram, his name was changed to Abraham later by God. You can read that on your own. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's a big blessing. Now, I want you to know, God starts with Abram, and he says, hey, I've got this huge blessing for you. It it is going to cost you something. You're going to have to leave behind Your native land, what you're comfortable with, your relatives and your family, all the people who know you. Leave them behind because I've got something better than that for you. And we'll come back to that in a little bit, but what God was saying is, Abraham, everything that you thought identified your life and was going to be a source of blessing to you, forget about that because I have something better for you. And Abraham had this decision to make. Which one do I trust? Do I trust the normal human form of like, I'm going to take my cultural modes and my family's offerings and teachings to me, and I'm going to leverage my culture and my relationships to to live my best life? Or do I trust God and give all of that up and go a whole new direction? The reason that Abraham is the father of faith is because he, out of all of humanity, decided to listen to God. He wasn't perfect, but he trusted And so we see that this promise is interesting because God says, I'm going to bless you in some really significant ways, Abraham. Abram in this case. Later his name became Abraham. But I'm going to bless you in some some significant ways. But this blessing is going to be so exponential that all of the families on earth will be blessed through you. If you're Abraham, you're like, "I, I I don't even know how to imagine that, but I know what blessing means. Do you, know, do you know what blessing means? Blessing means reversing the curse of a broken world. Only God can really do it. Like, we can bless each other in faith towards God, but it's God who brings the blessing. And blessing reverses the curse. Blessing says you may be destined 
for brokenness and death, but God can actually give you good things and health and life. Blessing reverses the brokenness of the world. And God says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you so big, your life, your generation can't contain it. All the families on earth will be blessed. And Abram said, okay, I'll go. And he went. And his life had ups and downs. He was imperfect, but he kept trusting God. The promise was fulfilled in different ways over time, but he never saw the fulfillment of the promise until in eternity, which is the way the blessing comes in our lives. We see the blessings of God in the midst of our own imperfection. As we continue to trust him through the ups and downs of life, we see blessing in installments, but we never see the fullness of God's blessing because it waits for us after this broken world in our new life. But I will say you see a taste of it. You see a taste of the supernatural blessing over and over again as you trust Jesus, just like Abram. But what I want you to know is that God called Abraham before he had done anything that holy. God offered the promise to Abraham before Abraham did anything special. We don't even know, like Abraham was probably the most average guy in the world. We're told nothing. He had no credentials God just went to him and said, Abram, I've got a promise for you. You're going to have to leave behind what you think identifies you, but I've got something big for you. And it teaches us a principle about God's blessing that God always makes commitments to us before he makes rules for us. And when you read the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of different standards, rules, those kinds of things, but I want you to always read the rules through the lens of what God has promised, what he has committed to you, that God gives you rules, as we'll see, to help you receive the blessing that he has committed to you, that he has promised to anyone who will trust in him. But that's not the last time that God promised Abraham. He reaffirms the promise multiple times in that Abraham story, but the last time is in Genesis 22, after Abraham does something radical that is a final test of Abraham's heart. I'll let you read it on your own. But in Abraham, or in Genesis 22, 16 through 18, after Abraham trusts God in this radical way, God reaffirms the promise in a different way. He says, by myself I have sworn. God didn't make a deal with Abraham. God made a deal with himself. He says, declares the Lord, because you have done this, you've trusted me, and have not withheld your son, your only son. You get to read the story. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, you might have noticed in that passage in Galatians we read that Paul makes a big deal out of the promise came to Abraham and his child, singular, not children, plural. And in this promise, everywhere you see offspring, it's singular, God's going to bless all the families on the earth. God's going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and one of his descendants. And Paul says, we've been waiting all along, and Jesus is the one. We were waiting. We thought it was was King David, and David wasn't perfect, and he did some good things, but he wasn't the one. We thought it might have been a prophet or another leader, and they all fell short, but Jesus never fell short. And Jesus Open the door for God's blessing to all people in all nations everywhere because Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's 
voice. And so God clarified the promise to Abraham that Abraham will have an offspring singular that will be the source of that blessing to all people. But before we talk more about Jesus, I want you to notice that we often feel like we can't live up to Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus. But maybe a realistic example to follow is Abraham. Abraham's called the father of faith, and what we see in Abraham is what God wanted with every one of the people of Israel. We see in Abraham a model of how relationship with God works. Did you notice that God made a promise based on grace? Galatians 3.18 is a promise based on grace. Abraham didn't earn it. God just promised him, if you'll trust me, I'm going to do something big. God made a promise, but Abraham responded with faith. He trusted God. And you know, you know that you have faith when you're willing to take action based on it. If you don't take action, it's probably just a thought in your head. But it's when that thought moves into action. Whoa, excuse me. It's when that thought, I'm a little excited. When that thought moves into action, that is when it's real faith. That is when trust is proven. You can say you trust someone, But until you act on it, you don't really trust them. You just are thinking about trusting them. Abraham took action on God's promise and God counted it. He's like, that's faith. That's what I'm looking for. I can have a relationship based on that. And God was delighted with Abraham's faith and responded with a recommitment of his promise to Abraham. And Jesus was sent as a result of Abraham's faith. And that's how we're supposed to respond. We receive God's promises. We receive God's promises and we take action based on God's promises. And when God sees that faith, he blesses it. He says, yes, I want to bless that. That's what I'm looking for. And you know the number one blessing God wants to give is relationship. It's closeness with him. A relationship that satisfies the needs of our souls and gives us purpose in life. And that's what God wants with all of us. It's what he wants with you as a relationship built on trust that results in blessing. And he goes on to explain how this works with the law. Back in Galatians 3 and verse 19, it says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. Underline that phrase. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people, Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement, but God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. God doesn't want anything between him and you. He doesn't want a mediator. The law was a mediator. The law was a placeholder. The law was a bridge keeping us connected to God until Jesus came to present faith and salvation to all people. The law had a purpose as a mediator. We think, that, that, um, we think that the law was everything, but the law was a temporary solution revealing the problem that the promise to Abraham solves. Do you know, there's a lot of people, and maybe you're, maybe you're here today and you feel this way. I know there have been seasons in my life where I felt this way, where you hear about God's blessing and you're kind of like, eh, I don't really need that. I don't really need God's blessing. Like, I'm kind of good. Like, my life is pretty happy. I think I can do what I want with what I've got. Like, thanks, God, but I think I'm good. And the law, if you want to realize that you need God, try to do the Old Testament law perfectly. I mean, that's that's the great dare of Scripture. Like, you want to be holy without God? Prove it. 
Do the Old Testament law. Except that you have thousands of years of an entire nation, an entire ethnic people group uh, trying to do that. And to a man and a woman, they all fell short, even sometimes with the best intentions. Why? Because we'll read in a moment that sin has a much stronger grip on our lives than any of us like to admit, but the law reveals the problem of sin. The law was meant to show us that we actually do need God to live according, to live the life that we want to live. So we think that following the rules was meant to save us, and following the rules was not meant to save us. It was meant to show us that we needed to be saved. God knows this. He knows that we need to realize that we need him. It's the first step towards experiencing grace is realizing, like me realizing like, man, I need a solution for that honeymoon. I could have, I could have held on to my pride and said, no, pastor, I'm, of course I have a plan. Of course I'm good. No, I'm, don't worry about me. And how often do we do that with other people and with God? That's pride. The law breaks our pride and says, you're not as good as you think you are. The law ministers to this reality of sin that we don't trust God until we stop trusting ourselves. And I would ask you, do you practice not trusting yourself sometimes? We don't trust God until we stop trusting ourselves. So sometimes do you decide, man, God, I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the strength. I'm not going to stay where it's comfortable for me. I'm going to step out where I desperately need you. Because we need him. And that's what the law was meant to show us. And it played a special role in our lives. Reading on in verse 21, it says, Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promise? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, slaves to sin. So we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. Do you notice the language there? Protective custody, under guard, guardian. The law played an interesting role. Again, the Bible does call us to a lot of rules and standards. The grace of Jesus sometimes is misinterpreted to say, well, you don't have to do anything. It's used to convince ourselves that God loves you exactly as you are and never wants to change anything about you. The first half of that is true and the second half is a lie. The the Bible does present a lot of rules and standards and both Old Testament and New play this role of the guardian The Old Testament law in a very specific way. The New Testament rules and standards are more of a way that can be applied in every nation and culture. But the the rules are not empty. They serve a purpose to guard our opportunity for relationship with God. The rules of the Bible were always meant to protect our opportunity to have relationship with God. And when we follow the standards of Scripture, we position ourselves to experience more of God's grace and blessing. And when we negate them and reject them, 
We position ourselves in a way that ignores what God wants to do with us. That's why the New Testament makes a clear point about separating between Old Testament standards and New Testament standards so we don't get confused there. But the rules are meant to guard the relationship. Why? Is it because God loves rules? We, we, we think that. God has a reputation for being all about the rules, but what he's really interested in is relationship. And so he sent a guardian. He sent a guardian, and the law functioned much like a foster parent functions to guard a child from a damaging relationship. In our case, as humanity, the damaging relationship is with ourselves. We are prisoners of our own sin until we walk in the freedom of Jesus. We are slaves to our own selfishness, greed, pride, and other ugly things that we think and feel and do until we are set free and until Jesus came to set us free. The guardian was the law saying there is a right way and a wrong way. There is a moral code. There is a process of sacrifice to draw you close to God. There is a mediator that can get you close to health, that can show you what health looks like. It can't give it to you, but it can show you a picture of it until you get the family you were meant to be in, until you get that place of permanency where you can live the life that you were called to live and flourish as you were meant to live, but you cannot flourish until you find that place of permanency. And it's described for us in the final verses of chapter three. It says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism, baptism is a significant statement, have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise, his inheritance for Abraham, belongs to you. The only place of permanency we will ever find is in the family of God. The only identity that will really live up to what we were created for is in the family of God. He says here, when you come to Jesus in faith, when you say, Jesus, I believe in what you've done for me. I need your sacrifice for my sins. I need your spirit to help me live life the way that, you were, that I was called to live. When we put our trust in Jesus... We receive the inheritance of Abraham, and we signify that with an action statement like baptism. That we say, and baptism is a statement just like Abraham made. Abraham left behind family and country. He left behind culture and relationship. He left behind everything that had identified him in the past in pursuit of God's blessing in the future. And baptism is the same thing. It's a statement that says, I'm leaving behind everything in the past. It's going under like it's dying in a grave, and it's coming out like it's rising to new life. I'm leaving it behind. I'm leaving everything behind, identity, good and bad, because I'm walking in the identity of my new family, the family of God. And he says, it's like putting on new clothes, a new uniform, a new outfit. People, you walk out in public and people say, where did you get that outfit? You must be shopping at a different store. It's that significant, that distinct, that people notice it about you. And he says, it's so significant that the other identities that the world puts on you, the ethnic identities, Jew, Gentile, gender identities, male, female, 
The social identities, rich, poor, slave, master, employee, employer, all those other things, they pale in comparison. They stop being the label on your name tag. They stop being the thing that you identify yourself by, and they become a tool in your tool belt as you walk in your new relationship with God. Your identity now is son or daughter of God. And that's all that matters. And if you're not in a place where that's all that matters, you don't know the grace of God yet. Can I just stir some hunger in you? You don't know the grace of God yet. If you're not satisfied when someone says, you must be a Christian, if that's not the most satisfying thing about you, you don't know the grace of Jesus yet. And I say that lovingly to to create that hunger and thirst that you would know the power of Jesus. Do you know on this day, the day of Pentecost was the day that God poured out the next part of God's blessing because of the cross. It's when he poured out his resurrection power. It's when he poured out his loving presence. It's when he poured out his closeness with us that the Israelites had never been able to get close to. They stood on the outside of a temple knowing that God was on the other side. And God says through Jesus, I'm right here with you. And I want nothing from you except for you to be my son and my daughter. Will you walk through this life? You trust, I'll lead. You trust, I'll lead. And so I ask you this morning, what identifies you? What is the label that you wear on your shirt? What are the things that you pride yourself in? What are the things that you think you have earned? Now, the Apostle Paul was one of the most accomplished men in his generation. He said, I consider all of that garbage in comparison with knowing Jesus. Oh, When we understand the grace and the promise of Jesus, we want to just get rid of anything that would hold us back from him. Baptism is not this intimidating, like, I hope I'm good enough. Baptism is saying, I'm done with that, and all I want is you, Jesus. All I want is you, Jesus. I want nothing more than you, Jesus. Baptism says my career is not going to dictate my life anymore. My pursuit of romance is not going to dictate my life anymore. The cultural and social pressures around me are not going to dictate my life anymore. Jesus, my time on my knees in front of you is going to dictate my life. Your word is going to dictate my life. My relationship with you is the dominant factor in my life. I trust you more than I trust myself or all of the other experts in this world. And it's in that place that you experience the fullness of God's presence. It's in that place of trust. Not doesn't make life easy. Abraham's life was not easy. But it was good. It was rich. So do you trust Jesus like that? Is your identity in him like that? And if not, I don't care how old or young you are. I don't care how long you've been to church or if this is your first day. I read this morning the words of Peter after the first sermon preached on the day of Pentecost and he told the story of what Jesus did far better than I'm telling it today and people were cut to the heart they said what do we do now and Peter said repent turn 
Turn from the past. Turn from who you've been. Turn from the titles you've carried. Turn from the guilt and the shame that you felt. Turn from the history that you've had. Turn from those things and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? And receive the promise. Receive the promise, the promise that comes through the Holy Spirit. It's for you and for you and for you. He says it's for all your children and for all who are far off. What does that promise sound like? It's the promise of Abraham. And Peter's saying it's fulfilled. You have to repent and be baptized and receive it. Receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. And friends, I'm telling you, you didn't come to church today to sing some nice songs and feel good about yourselves. You didn't come to church today to get refreshed from your work week. You came to church today to meet with the living God. Did you meet with him yet? Did you meet with him yet? And if you don't go home today hungry, hungry for the living God, then the word has not hit your heart. If you don't go home today wondering, Jesus, what do I have to change about my life? How do I experience more of you? Then you don't love the living God. Now, am I saying that to guilt trip you? No, because it's all a gift of grace. We don't earn it, but we hunger and thirst for it. We hunger and thirst for it. We say, God, my titles and my stuff, oh, they don't satisfy me. I need more of you. Church, we are invited into something that everything in our lives seduces us away from. We are prisoners to sin. We find freedom in the grace of Jesus. Have you found freedom? Would you bow your heads with me today? Father, we come to you and so often we don't know even how to respond. We don't know what to do, but Lord, we we say the words of the king in 2 Chronicles who was faced with more problems than he had solutions and he said, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Father, I pray in this moment that our hearts would be fixed on you. I pray that nothing else would matter but in, com- but in comparison to you. I pray that we would hunger and thirst for you more than any other thing. I pray that we would long for you. And I pray, Father, that you would speak to every heart that's hungry right now in the name of Jesus, that you would speak to them a next step, that you would speak to them a, a step of repentance, that you would speak to them a step of surrender, that you would speak to them Father, I pray that where there are other things identifying us besides the identity that we have in you, that we would lay those before you today and surrender them. I pray that where we have held on to a set of rituals or rules, whether they be cultural or religious, that we think is necessary, would you let us drop those today and stop fighting for those empty structures And Father, most of all, I just pray for a taste of your goodness and your grace today. Father, would you pour out your spirit on us afresh and anew? You've always made good on your promises. You've made the only sacrifice that is necessary. Father, help us to simply accept and receive all that you are today. Wet our appetites for more. 
In Jesus' name, amen.